0: mother and child come with me sisters young
1: Welcome back, listeners. This is Amaya on assignment in California for a follow-up podcast to our Episode 6, Part 1, which was a really juicy discussion about our book club, Book of the Month, Witch Craze, A New History of the European Witch Hunts, Our Legacy of Violence Against Women by Anne Barstow. I'm here in the San Francisco Bay Area, a hub for all things mystical, magical, and witchy, to interview a modern-day witch, a friend of mine who I've always known as Rebecca. But in her witchcraft tradition and spiritual community, she goes by the name of Rihanna Rose. Rihanna, if you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners about who you are and what you do in the world today as a modern-day witch.
0: Thank you. Let's see here. So, my name is Rihanna Rose, and... I do quite a few things, like a lot of us. I'm a witch. I'm an herbalist. I'm a writer. I work as a coach. I'm a mother. I have a beautiful three-year-old girl. And um, a lot of my focus and energy over the past year or two has really been around training others to connect to the earth, connect to their bodies, connect to their sexuality, through plant medicine through meditation, through connecting to their own authentic selves, their hearts, and the beauty of this amazing planet that we are living upon and within. And, um, you know, I, it's funny to think about, but I've actually been practicing witchcraft for over 20 years now. And, um, And I've been teaching within my tradition for about, Mm, We'll say 13, because that's a pretty magical number. It's been a huge, huge part of my life, this path of magic and women's empowerment, the empowerment of the divine feminine, and has taken a lot of different twists and turns. Um, And one of the really beautiful things over the past couple years for me has been to see how much the interest in witchcraft has grown. When I first started getting involved in this stuff, um, I remember one of my co-workers asking me like does this mean that you call into the psychic friends network every night and she wasn't joking she really wanted to know (laughs) and um and another friend stopped being friends with me when she found out that I was practicing witchcraft and now it's so abundant and there's so much excitement and energy and like this beautiful upwelling um So it's just been really amazing to see that shift and to feel like I'm a part of that shift happening in maybe my own small way. Yeah, I I mean, I, being from
1: California and spending a lot of time in the Bay Area, I've been exposed to witchcraft, yet I really don't even know what it entails. I was hoping that you could explain some of these terms, like, what is witchcraft? What is paganism? What is magic? What are covens? What What is all this stuff?
0: Well, you know, um, there's, there's an old joke, or maybe it's a new joke. I don't know. If you have, like, ten witches in a room, um, you probably have 13 different opinions on these things. <laughs> so I'll definitely do my best. Um, you know, and especially the word witch, because the word witch can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, even people who are using that word to describe themselves, that doesn't even take into consideration the people who are using that word to describe other people, um, perhaps in a derogatory way. But for those of us who are using that word to describe ourselves, there's a lot of different um, types of witches. So the thing that connects most witches that I am acquainted with or that I've had experience with is a really deep and abiding love for the earth, a celebration of nature as divinity, as imminent divinity. And this belief that we can relate to that divinity and the divinity with ourselves in a really active way, a way that is co-creating um, the world, in, in whether that's in a big way or a small way. But that doesn't really explain it all because a lot of traditions, you know, indigenous traditions, um, many different types of faiths believe that the earth is this magical and amazing being that we can connect to what else makes someone a witch very often people who are using the word witch are using it to describe themselves as magic makers so beyond just feeling that we have a co-creative ability with the earth or with the forces of nature that there's something that is enchanting about that there's some way that that becomes a little otherworldly or liminal or perhaps opens us up to things beyond the earth beyond nature beyond what we can just see and um, that that's something that I think many many witches would agree with and then outside of that you start to get a lot of different questions even between witches you know um, some of some and in fact many witches believe in you know a, a divine figure like a mother goddess or a goddess Um, maybe a big cosmic star goddess. Um, A lot of witches believe in many deities, there are witches who don't believe in any kind of deity at this point. And they, they, they might um, really connect to, you know, ideas around quantum physics, and you know, this kind of intelligent universe without ascribing it to a being that we can really relate with. And so that starts to get really complicated. But I think that what we have seen in the last couple of dozen years has been especially in the United States has been a witchcraft which really really focuses on making magic for ourselves and for others, a witchcraft that celebrates the feminine and you know empowers women and gender queer people, a witchcraft that challenges the status quo and encourages us to look beyond. What mainstream society offers in terms of what success looks like, what happiness looks like, what our lives should look like, and really encourages us to see ourselves as as wielders of magic. And what is
1: magic? Is it just this turning back to nature and realizing that we're not as in control of our lives as we thought, that there's some other quality or essence
0: or spirit directing those things? I would argue that what you're describing there, I would actually call prayer. And that when we pray, we are asking for a blessing. We're asking for um, assistance in, in a way that Means that we are opening and making ourselves available, being receptive and being, you know, perhaps vulnerable in our yearning to connect with the divine. And there are lots of witches who pray. But magic, I think, is a little bit more active than that. Magic really sees us as a channel for those divine energies, and um, tells us that we should we should craft with it you know just like you would craft something else like you might decide you want to you know take a pottery and make a beautiful bowl or you might decide that you want to learn how to knit and knit someone a sweater when you're crafting you are creating and you are becoming that co-creative force and since we see ourselves as part of this sacred web of life we see ourselves as part of the beauty of nature and not separate from us when we do that, I think that many witches see ourselves as being these transformative agents of the earth. So there is this way that it's almost like we're doing the will of of the goddess or the earth in a particular kind of way, but um, but we get to add our own flavor, and we get to honor our desires, and we get to hold those desires as holy and sacred. and and put our will and our passion and our inspiration and whatever our own unique genius is towards making that happen. And so there's this um, collaboration aspect. There's like, if I'm gonna work with, say, an energy like fire, you know, I I don't see myself as like fire coming and bestowing upon me a gift, but more like fire and I are getting together and we're gonna make something really cool happen. And this is almost,
1: This is the difference between perhaps a more masculine or even patriarchal way of looking at nature where we're in control and, you know, we're defining how that nature is used versus perhaps, and you said this, agency, you said feminine, divine, and maybe a more feminine approach would be collaborative, creative, co-creative, you said.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean you know, for me personally, one of the most brilliant and amazing acts of creation that I ever have personally engaged in was birthing my daughter. And, you know, I definitely birthed my daughter. (laughs) You know, it wasn't uh, Mother Gaia coming through me to birth the daughter. It wasn't, you know. I didn't just surrender, and then she out, she popped. (laughs) That might have been nice, but that's not what happened. You know, I birthed that daughter, I birthed that beautiful baby, and um, and at the same time, I don't see myself as having like this dominance over her. I don't see myself as having to control her, or you know, I don't see myself as being a person who is dominating or controlling this beautiful child, my, my little Brie, right? And so I think that for me, that's the, the feminine approach to magic. It isn't feminine the way some spiritual traditions use that word to mean passive or receptive only, right? But it is feminine in that it's birthing something, it's creating something. And just like birth, there is a sexual component to that and it feels like, yeah, I am pulling these energies into my body, I'm feeling those energies, I'm drinking them in, I'm cultivating them. I might even be doing things like singing or chanting or moaning in order to make them stronger and more potent. And then at the end of that, a beautiful thing is birthed. And um, that strong connection to both a feminine form of creation And also a very sexual form of creation is very much um, a part of all of the different forms of witchcraft that I've been exposed to. And I would say just witchcraft in general. It's a part of it. And it's one of the things that can be really beautiful and exciting and liberating about it.
1: Yeah, and this is one of the things we're learning and talking about in our book club. We read this book, Witch Craze. And really, it was a feminist perspective of the witch burnings, the witch trials, because as we know, really, our history was written by men for men, and much of women's history has been ignored. And so this author, Anne Barstow, looks at the witch trials over a period of 200 years, which Is quite a while. She found numbers upwards of 100,000 persecuted and killed, almost 80% women. And the numbers vary, but really she's looking just at what was recorded. And much of what was recorded was destroyed. So there are numbers up into millions. But she's said, okay, 100,000. Still a lot, still a lot. And from her perspective, really, the witch burnings were about women's sexuality, women's agency being taken away. And so for you to speak about witchcraft now, about really coming back into our sexuality, and what does it mean to be a woman, is huge. I mean, this is what Witchcraft, I imagine, what women were involved in, so connected to the birth process. Part of their professions during that time, well, for millennia, for, forever, has been to be connected to the birth process. That's the woman's domain. Yet during the witch trials, really, women were persecuted for these things. And their agency was taken away. The one thing that they had, really at this time was taken away and seen as evil connected to the devil and women were burned at the stake so i'm curious how does this history this traumatic history in our lives as women affect the work that you're doing now and how do why is it important for us to know and how do we come to terms with it
0: So that's a beautiful question. And one of the things that I've seen in my work, especially actually my work outside of the witchy world, has been to see how many women experience this internalized oppression around using their voices, this internalized oppression around really reaching for the work that feels meaningful to them and a way of living that feels like thriving. And when we go deeper into this feeling of oppression and all of the emotions that go along with it, shaming, guilt, um, a lot of judgment towards self, a lot of judgment towards others, maybe uh, feeling like their sexual desire is slipping away or that their joy for life is slipping away, all of those things, so often what I find is this ancestral echo that to me comes from having been burned at the stake. And what is especially interesting to me about it is that, yes, it is something that I find among communities like your community where people are really interested in excavating what it means to be a woman and really interested in restoring what it means to be empowered as a woman really interested in looking at, well, how did this happen? I fight it among women who have never asked those questions or even thought that they needed to challenge the status quo until suddenly their unhappiness or their lack of desire to make love to their husbands or partners or their strange impulsive fantasies to sell all their possessions and, you know, travel around on a train or something starts to become so overwhelming that they can't ignore it anymore and then they start asking well why am I like this why have I never been able to speak my desire why have I never been able to really say this is what feels right for me why have I never really been able to to go after the thing that I've known since I was a little tiny girl that I wanted to do and There are these echoes, these ancestral echoes. And when I mention this to them, and I usually, you know, especially for these kinds of situations, I'm kind of careful about how I mention it um, or how I talk about it. There is this sigh of relief, this beautiful, just exhalation. And it's like, finally, I'm seen. Finally, someone said this thing that I thought I was crazy for thinking. And it might not be that they have a specific remembrance of having been burned at the stake or having ancestor burned at the stake or anything like that, but it's more like this remembrance or this understanding that they've been carrying something that's so old that goes beyond them and that led to death and that led to destruction and that led to to losing whether it meant losing children or losing their own life or losing the lives of their partners. And so um, it's a powerful time for all of us to be working with this, and there's a lot of different ways that people do work with it, whether that's in small groups or one-on-one work, working through healing processes or transformative processes, maybe even deciding that they want to go and explore their their own um, indigenous belief system. Because that's one of the things that's important to understand around what we say witchcraft is or what we say paganism is. So it is true that many of the people who were burned at the stake probably were practicing some form of witchcraft. Um, They might have been using charms. They might have been using... Uh, connecting to fairy folk, (laughs) they may have been actually casting spells, but a lot of the people who were burned at the stake or, um, you know, tortured or killed in some other way, they were just practicing the folk religion that they had grown up with and that their grandparents had grown up with and that their grandparents' grandparents had grown up with. And it wasn't so much what I'm talking about, this beautiful, co-creative, magical, let's you know, let's call into our lives what we truly want from our most innermost heart. It was really um, just their own indigenous religion that was embedded in where they lived. It was embedded in the rivers they lived next to it was embedded in the forest that they lived within. It was embedded in the hills, it was embedded in the stones. And it was very, very connected to the earth and connected to the land. And that that tradition of doing that was something that all of their neighbors had done all you know at one point everyone was practicing that same folk religion and maybe some few of them were actually taking that a little further to do that more active form of witchcraft but when we look at that oppression and that history Yes, maybe one of the things that we are calling back into our lives is that more powerful aspect of the magic and the spell crafting and the connection to the divine feminine and the ways that we can be these channels for for beautiful things that are imminent in the world and yet beyond the world. And sometimes what we're simply calling back is our own right to have a land or nature based belief system that comes from our heritage for those of us who are of European descent um, that is simple, that is beautiful, that involves very, very elegant and yet practical forms of prayer and connection. And, um, And so as we are working to reclaim all of this, you know, some of us are more drawn to reclaiming the really flashy witchy stuff and some of us are just feeling more called to reclaim, you know, the right to make a soup and have that soup and all of the things within it be considered healing and to, to you know, to maybe stir it a couple times in a certain direction and feel that our love is going into it. And that might be enough.
1: I'm just tuning in, and I'm really, like, emotionally affected by what you've just shared. I know for me, I had a moment, I know for me, I reached a point in my life where I had an awakening And I couldn't understand why I wasn't able to step more fully into my power, to find my voice, to ask for my worth. Yet I had a long history and lots of practice doing that as a child and as a teen. But there was this heaviness and this weight that I didn't understand. And not until I got into my 30s and I really saw the world for what it was, and for the first time I cried for the loss of the goddess, I realized that I'd been carrying something from the past that needed to be acknowledged. And understood and it's tragic that this history of this violent time against women and indigenous cultures really has pretty much been written out of the history books and we have to go digging and searching to find What is that thing that we feel like we're carrying that's holding us back? This internal critic, this internal oppression. Granted, there's still external oppression, but for the most part, we do have opportunities. Yet, we're still holding ourselves back. And it's interesting because when you start to look at the witch trials and the history of all of this and who was burned at the stake, who was persecuted. We had, you know, these elders, these wise, powerful healers in the community that were influential and doing their work in the world. And they were persecuted. They were killed for that. And so no wonder that we, as women or healers or people who are in touch with the magical world or earth-based knowledge, when we want to step up and do this work, no wonder we have doubts and fears that come up. I mean, the epigenetics of trauma, it, it's carried in our genes. So how do you address this? like in a practical way with your clients and in the work that you're doing?
0: I have a couple of different ways that I approach this. And I think it's always going to be the tapestry of healing modalities that works for most people, where there is a way that now that I am Working more one on one with folks and really seeing the power of confronting things that we kind of prosaically call limiting beliefs or um, internalized oppression or, you know, um, mindset. That can be really, really powerful. And it's something that I do with my clients a fair bit of just opening up the structures within our minds that have been so manipulated by patriarchy, by trauma, by capitalism, by colonialism, by racism, all of those things that, that it's hard to access that essence self, that we talk ourselves out of being able to access that deep, heartfelt, authentic, soulful being that we are. And that can be really powerful. And also for me, there is great healing potential in acts of liberation, in acts of ecstasy. So my specific tradition that I practice of witchcraft, the reclaiming tradition, we're an ecstatic tradition. We focus on things like drumming and singing and running around in the forest and big fires and sacred sexuality and being together in community and and opening up our bodies and minds and spirits and hearts in a way that is this like direct communion with nature and with ourselves and with the divine. And so much is possible in those spaces. So much becomes apparent and it's less about going into the story necessarily as it is about really being in the process of healing in that direct moment. And so I find that to be a really, really helpful part of the process. I also find that for some of us who have experienced trauma, Well, I would argue that all of us have experienced trauma growing up within a capitalist and patriarchal culture. But for some of us who have experienced more direct forms of trauma, really direct forms of abuse and um, harm within these systems, that doing actual trauma, um, doing work that resolves trauma can be super helpful in terms of reclaiming these parts of ourselves. And I just want to add one more thing, which is that, again, in my tradition, we talk about those who were lost during the witch burnings, but at other times too, other folks who have been lost these, these witches of the past. And we call them the mighty dead of the craft. And the mighty dead of the craft are a little bit less those folks who maybe were just living their lives, maybe a little too pretty, a little too old, a little too disfigured or whatever and got swept up in the witch craze, and more those people who actually were practicing magic, who really were passing down ancient secrets of how to work with energy, who really were being these co-created forces of healing and these vixens. Um, of transformation and and we call on them for help we call on them for their blessings we call on their them for their wisdom and we also call on our descendants those who will come after us those whose faces we will never see in our own lives but who will inherit this lineage from us and so there's a lot of help. It isn't this idea that I have to do this alone if I'm carrying this backpack that I can't seem to get off of um, being silenced and feeling disconnected from my body and feeling disempowered and feeling um, like I can't truly claim who I am. And that has been handed to me from this legacy of this terrible history that I don't have to figure out the healing of that myself that I'm part of the healing of it and I have this very beautiful role of being the one who's alive right now and embodied and can do certain things that the ancestors and descendants because they're not embodied can't do but they're there too they're a part of this too and I think that that gives me a lot of hope and especially as Now I've had the experience of some of my own dear teachers and beloved witch companions pass out of this life and to whatever is beyond, and I feel them become part of that mighty dead of the craft, and I feel them take their rightful place there. There's something really nourishing about that for me, Um, and that might be true for me and, and for everybody else. There might be some other way that you connect to that idea. So it might just be a beloved grandmother who was kind of eccentric and told dirty jokes, you know, or it could be um, a neighbor who seemed a little witchy who passed on, it could just be a feeling of being connected to the greater web of life. However, we want to see it. We don't have to fix all of this just with our own time, attention and resources. There are things that are timeless, and that are beyond the world that we can see, feel and hear that are part of doing the work of overcoming and healing that history. Yeah, it's
1: um it's a different approach to healing than what we've had in the west. You know, it's this really collective co-creative beautiful synergistic two way street for healing instead of the the model the patient therapist model western psychology where the all-knowing psychologist is there with all of his you know theories and pathology and to heal the broken person on the couch this is more of a group coming together calling on the wisdom of the ancestors opening up to that, opening up to each other, coming into their bodies, being embodied. Can you speak a little bit more to that process?
0: Well, as a witch, I feel that the body is holy and sacred and that all the processes of the body are holy and sacred and that there is a wisdom that comes from our bodies, comes from the... Blood that I bleed every month that comes from my belly, that comes from my toes, that comes from my bones, that may even be beyond words, but that is an integral part of what is needed both personally, that I need to know this, I need to feel it, I need to take it in, and that our world needs it. It needs this embodied wisdom. And so the embodiment process becomes less about necessarily wanting to feel a certain way and it's certainly not about looking a certain way, although there are many you know, beautiful dances and all kinds of things that we do as witches, but it's really about accessing these inner wisdoms, these inner voices, and the things that speak to us through that form of communication and the things that we can know when we are able to drop out of the talking self and into deeper selves, maybe even younger selves. And so as a witch, I do a lot with embodiment. And I would say that when I use one of my most potent witches tools, which is to work with the herbs, I'm also deeply using embodiment. And that's important because when we work with plants in that way, and, and other things too, food as medicine, all kinds of things, we're directly saying that these other beings that we might be putting in our bodies and that they are speaking to us through the ways that we change or what we hear when we put them in our bodies, um, that they have a part, that they're a part of the process, that they're a part of the healing, that their wisdom is as needed as our own and that we really want to listen to them. So for me, that's a lot of what happens through embodiment. And I just want to say that I definitely didn't start here. In fact, I might have been the least likely proponent of embodiment ever. I grew up in a family that was incredibly intellectual. My family absolutely did not prioritize the body in any way. It was all about what happened in the mind. My dad was an incredible intellectual. He was a member of Mensa. He read all the time. Um, My mom was always sitting around crafting and doing all, all kinds of things, but nobody was doing anything with their bodies. I didn't grow up that way. And in fact, I was that little girl on the playground who was absolutely picked last for every single sports thing. I didn't feel embodied. I didn't know that it was important to to tap into that part of myself. I just grew up thinking that my body was this thing that got to carry around my head and my head was really what was important. And learning to become embodied and to value the wisdom of the body and to really know that it was important to devote time to nourishing my body because it's what is good for my, my whole being, but also because there's this access point to other things that I wouldn't be able to know or experience without doing that, that was something that I had to learn. And now it's one of the foundations of my own spiritual practice. It's something that I have committed to doing every morning, um, the way that I do embodiment practices. And it's also something that I bring to my work with others. And so I just want to add that because... If someone out there is kind of listening and thinking like, yeah, I mean this embodiment stuff sounds great, but I've never really been into that. I want you to know I was never really into it either and I and I've learned so much from really shifting that and and it's completely possible to shift.
1: I loved how you were saying the wisdom of the body as well as the wisdom of the things we put into our body. And that marriage there And I was just thinking, a lot of what we talk about in this podcast, From a Feminist Approach, is also, you know, about women's reproductive health. And I was just thinking, the wisdom of birth control, pharmaceutical birth control, what does that do to the body, compared to perhaps an herbal remedy, or a more natural plant that would have wisdom for that. And I mean, how do you approach women's reproductive health and all of that from witchcraft and herbalism? Is there anything you'd like to share with that for our listeners?
0: Absolutely. And so just to let folks know, my focus as an herbalist up until very recently was exclusively on reproductive health and pregnancy and postpartum and working to balance hormones and there's an incredible magic in doing that and then recently I started branching out from that into um, focusing a little bit more on the heart and the spirit and what is needed there so I've dealt with this a lot and one thing I want to say from a feminist perspective is that I know as a woman I am deeply indebted to the invention of birth control, because it was the invention of birth control that truly allowed this sexual liberation to happen in the 70s, where suddenly you could have sex without worrying about having a baby. And you could enjoy all different kinds of very pleasurable things that many women had never experienced until marriage, and all of the kinds of problems that go along with only experiencing sex within marriage. So I have a lot of respect for that and a lot of appreciation for it. And I know that for many, many people in this country and in other countries, the right to have birth control is not guaranteed and is still something we should adamantly fight for and and work to To ensure that women and genderqueer folk have access to because it is a foundational aspect of our freedom and specifically our sexual freedom which I care very deeply about that being said hormonal birth control has some has some real challenges um, within our bodies and there is a way in which when we start to adulterate our hormones on that level, we can numb out some of the, the gifts that come from the reproductive experience. So for example, many people before they go on birth control experience a surge of love and creative energy and openness and vulnerability and increased sexual pleasure around ovulation and then they might have a dip right before they're about to get their menses and then right at the onset of their menses or just before they'll experience this surge of primal sexuality and this more fiery sexuality and this more liberated and robust sexuality and then maybe during their cycle their menses they feel more inward and they want to ask questions about the way that they've been living their life and they want to ask questions about what truly feels good to them and maybe shed some things that don't feel good anymore. And so when we start using hormonal birth control especially over a long period of time, we lose those natural ebbs and flows. And from a magical perspective, those are real gifts. Those are parts of us that are intuitive. Those are parts of us that have access to information, this embodied information that is beyond what our maybe our minds might think or, or say or want. And so, you know, it isn't that we can't access those things when we're on hormonal birth control. We can, especially if we bring intuition to it. But for some of us, we may start questioning about whether or not hormonal birth control is the right step for us, especially in a day and age when there are lots of alternatives available around digital birth control around using things like charting and natural fertility methods that have shown to be just as um, effective. Digital birth control? Yeah, it's true. I personally haven't <laughs> done digital birth control, but I have clients who do. So they're basically apps. Is that an implant of something? <laughs> no, it sounds creepy. No, they're basically apps that are are doing the work of charting for you. So natural fertility used to be a pretty challenging process that took a lot of effort to learn and I'll even more effort to maintain um, in a reliable way. And that gets dangerous. Because if you're not really, really on the ball with it, it's likely that you'll make a mistake. And then that mistake could lead you to an unwanted pregnancy. But with digital birth control, they take a lot of the human error out of it. Um, And For a long time, I was using a device called DAISY. It took my temperature every day and kind of figured out my fertility for me so that I knew when my fertile window was. And then when I was in that fertile window, I could use a backup form of birth control. And then when I wasn't in that fertile window, I didn't have to worry about it. I just was with my partner the way I wanted to be. And he would ejaculate inside you. Yeah, of course.
1: And you would be on no birth control. You were just tracking your cycle. Yes. Would you use things like, because I've heard there's this herb called like carrot seed and flowers. Like are there herbs too that you would be using or you just
0: relied on tracking of your cycle? So you know that I'm a deep lover of the herbs. However, in this one case I have to say that actually using digital birth control is more effective than using (laughs) something like carrot seed um, which people have used, and, and I think there's reason to explore that further. But um, we have amazing tools at our disposal right now, things that our mighty dead ancestors would have only, you know, wished they could have, right? And that's one of the things is um, being able to use things like digital birth control or, you know, if you want to call uh, the natural... Uh, fertility awareness method is what it's called. So this really is modern day witchcraft. It's modern day (laughs) and there's a lot of science to it and you know it's funny because I mean you know it's something that maybe I as this witchy lady really like but it's also things that If you go to the middle of downtown San Francisco and you hang out with some techies, you know, women who are in the tech industry, they also really like it, right? Because it is incredibly modern and involves a lot of numbers and science and all kinds of stuff. Um, You know, and so to kind of go back to the hormonal birth control thing quickly, um, it can be a really great thing, like I said. But one thing to know is that hormonal birth control at its essence is suppressing a natural process. It's telling our bodies, most forms are telling our bodies not to ovulate. And in fact, tricking our bodies not in, into not ovulating. And I tend to believe that that oppression of a natural organic process of the body is likely to have repercussions over time. Now, they might be repercussions that we are willing to have and that aren't going to derail our lives in these big ways. But I also have found that some of my clients feel, and for myself, it's certainly true, that being on hormonal birth control, and especially certain forms of hormonal birth control, had long-standing impacts on their bodies. And so, again, every person needs to make that decision for themselves. But just to remember that Generally, our bodies work best when they are honored and when their processes get to happen the way that the body has this, des- you know, the body is designed to function. And so when we use hormonal birth control, we're choosing a different route. And so it's possible especially if you find that your body isn't handling birth control very well if it's making you kind of crazy some of the time you're gaining tons and tons of weight maybe you notice that your pms is much worse than it used to be maybe you notice that you just don't feel like yourself these could all be indications that although hormonal birth control works for some people it's not working for you right now and maybe you want to look into something different and maybe the gifts of that are Beyond what you had guessed they would be. Thank
1: you. We'll definitely provide some information about alternative methods for birth control because I'm really interested in that. And I'd actually like to have another woman on to speak more in depth about this because, you know, there are women that are taking birth control that's getting rid of their periods for five years. But, you know, this is what women have to do, this is what we have to do in this world. We're the ones who are responsible. So we are coming to the end of the hour, and I did want to um, ask a couple more questions, and I'll put them out there, and you can choose. I'm interested in, like, what what are the challenges of the modern-day witch? Living in the Bay Area is quite different than being in the South. Even the word witch is really, it's quite triggering. Are there other words that people use? Are there other ways to get involved? What are the challenges? What's the future? And then what would you recommend to our listeners if they're interested in starting to deepen into this work and learn more?
0: Sure, I am completely aware of the fact that living in the Bay Area gives me um, a sense of safety and liberation that people in other areas don't feel around claiming the word witch, especially in the South. In fact, some of my most beloved teachers and companions are from the South, and they've moved here. Um, However, I want to share just a little story, which is that this year, my husband and daughter and I traveled to the Midwest, as we do every year for Christmas. And unlike most years, we decided to drive this year. And we also drove home. And this was because we had to pull this boat home. (laughs) See, we were driving home with this big boat on the back of our car. And it just so happens that here in the Bay Area, I drive around in this cute little hybrid white SUV, and I have a witch sticker on the back of my car. And it just says witch. That's all it says. And I don't even think that much about it here. It's almost a little too cliche to even be noticed. But suddenly I started thinking about it when I was driving through Nebraska and when I was driving through Oklahoma and when I was driving through Texas. And it's a really, really noticeable sticker. (laughs) But we had nothing but good conversations about it as I was traveling through. Now that's not to say that every single person we passed had good feelings towards us and blessed us with their open hearts. Probably what it means is that people who weren't feeling particularly good about it just didn't approach us. But I had a lot of really interesting conversations on that road trip from people. Sometimes they were kind of jokey. Sometimes they were kind of nervous. Sometimes, you know, they were kind of giggly. But they were curious more than they were judgmental. So I just want to throw that out there to people who may be feeling like, well, I I mean, I don't live in California, I could never call myself a witch. You might be surprised. <laughs> that said, um, some of the challenges around witchcraft today, I mean, from my perspective, actually, one of the biggest challenges is that because there is this massive upwelling of interest in witchcraft, I mean, if you type in, say, a hashtag like witches of Instagram, into your social media, you'll come up with hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of hits. And one of the challenges of that is that within my tradition, we actually have, you know, we, we train people. We train people to work with magic. We train people to know themselves. We have a process for becoming a teacher. And we have guidelines around what is an integrity in terms of people making money off of teaching witchcraft, people making money off of working with people who don't consider themselves witches, and um, we have ways that we check in with each other if we are concerned about someone's integrity. And so one of, my th- one of my concerns lately has been that I see a lot of stuff going on through the internet from people who are witches, but there's no way of knowing what they mean when they use that word if what they're teaching is something that has been passed down or whether they made it up themselves, which doesn't actually mean that it's bad or any less authentic than what I do. A lot of what I do is stuff that has occurred to me and that has come through my magic. But there's no transparency around it. There may even be lies around it. And there are a lot of things done in the names of commercialism. craft and commercialism don't mix well inherently they're very different energies which isn't to say that like myself you can't be a witch in the world and have a thriving life of abundance but it does require a certain consciousness and integrity just the way that would be true in say the yogic tradition or a meditation tradition or any kind of tradition but unlike those traditions we don't have guiding bodies that license people or that have you know codes of ethics or anything like that so I see that and I sometimes I do get a little bit concerned about that I feel like what I want most is to have the magic and the heart of witchcraft grow and expand and get deeper and deeper I don't want to see things become more shallow or watered down and so that's something that I think is really important for people who are getting interested in this because you can definitely go online and just do a search for witchcraft, but you never know what you're going to find. So what I recommend um, for people who are interested is a couple of things. One, it is so rewarding to look at your own ancestral history and learn about what the folk traditions of those people were. And for people like myself, I have a lot of different folk traditions. I have English, I have Irish, many, many Jewish ancestors. Um, I have ancestors from Latvia. You know, there's a lot of different places. And so there's many rich traditions there to be rediscovered, whether or not they were specifically witchy. Just those folk traditions, it's really a rewarding place to start. So that's one thing that you could do. Another thing you could do, um, specifically if you're interested in reading more or learning more there's a couple of books that i think are just amazing and beautiful always on the top of my list is the spiral dance by starhawk starhawk is one of my teachers and a good friend of mine and that book is really important because it's one of the first books that took witchcraft out of this kind of broom closet of cheesy spells and cheap candles and easy ideas into something that was a lot more deep complicated and enriching and so i do think that that's a great place to start i think another really good book that can be helpful for people who read witch craze because there's a similar vibration or focus would be drawing down the moon by margaret atler that book was written in the 80s but it's really about how witchcraft in the 50s 60s and 70s started to come out of the shadows and be practiced again because actually in England up until the 70s it was illegal to practice witchcraft and there were a lot of really special and dedicated witches who challenged that in all sorts of subtle and sometimes extremely ostentatious ways in order to make it both legal to practice witchcraft and also something people would actually even consider doing because it had largely been forgotten. And so that's a really great book, I think, for people to explore more deeply.
1: Thank you so much, Rihanna. This was really informative. I I needed to hear this and, and be inspired, you know, like there is another way for us to be engaging with the earth, with ourselves, with others. If there's one simple practice that our listeners could do to honor witchcraft or honor the earth, honor this new way of being, what would that be?
0: Go take a walk in the moonlight. Beautiful.
1: And Rihanna, how can people get in touch with you, find more information about you, per- perhaps work with you?
0: You're all welcome to reach out with any other questions or just to connect, I'm very accessible. My website is budblossomandhip.co and I'm on most forms of social media as Bud Blossom and Hip. And we'll also have that
1: in the podcast notes and on our website. So thank you so much for listening to Fem South on assignment in California. You can find more information at femsouth.com Facebook, Instagram, femsouth South. Don't forget to like us don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and give us ratings we need your support until next time you're on them south